Daniel Jeremiah of the NFL Network finds himself now as really in the seat of one of the preeminent voices on that network as he projects future NFL draft hopefuls. And, well, frankly, Daniel Jeremiah projected himself at one point in his life as a high-level college football player with aspirations of playing in the NFL. But that course got corrected, as his course has gotten corrected many times in his life. And what do you do? This is the intersection of faith and sports. But what happens when your faith is at an intersection? And what happens when that path and that course you think you're supposed to take Well, it leads to a dead end or a place you never imagined it going. You're going to love what you hear from Daniel Jeremiah. It's about listening, it's about trusting, and it's about a number of stories in his life that have most impacted both his sporting career and his faith as well. All right, DJ, you are the second son of a preacher man. You follow in the footsteps of the Seahawk chaplain, Judah Smith. And I believe Judas went seven generations deep. I think he went all the way back to a pistol-wielding grandmother on horseback traveling the country spreading the word. So I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how far back the Jeremiah clan goes. Just yeah, kind of curious to begin with here, Daniel, your background from a family environment. Sure, absolutely, Brock. I, I don't go back as far as Judah. You know, my father was a, was a pastor and is still currently a pastor and, and has a— uh, you know, a national ministry with, with radio and television to go along with his congregation there in San Diego. But his father, um, James T. Jeremiah, was a pastor, and he um, was instrumental, and in, I think he was, gosh, the, whatever the title, I believe it was the chancellor at uh, Cedarville College in Ohio, which is a Christian university, uh, for a long period of time. So if you ever go to the Colts training camp, which I know you know, it's uh, it's not that far away from there. So, I, uh, you know, it's, it's about maybe an hour and a half away from there in Cedarville, Ohio. Some of the buildings on campus are named after my grandmother, so they they have a they had a, a strong Christian influence there on the school. He was also a pastor, but then I believe his dad. I think that's where it ends. So I don't get to the pistol traveling uh, preacher. I, I can't go back that far. But you had a home that was immersed in the Word and the Lord from as early as you can remember it. Absolutely, a lot of people you'd be amazed all the time. I'd say once a week, somebody on social media will make the connection. They've listened to my dad on Turning Point, which is the name of his radio program or his television program, um, and they've listened to him for years, and they've stumbled upon me on uh, uh, NFL Network or, or whatever what other stuff I'm doing, and they've never made the connection. And then all of a sudden, they'll say, like, wait a second, are you in him? I go, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, so I grew up in a Christian home, a rock-solid Christian home. Um, and, uh, you know, went to a, a Christian school. My dad's the head of a campus there. So there's a church, there's a school that goes from kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade. You know, it was obviously a blessing to have parents that instilled in you at a very young age. I was saved when I was four years old on, uh, on a green couch in our living room with my mom, um, and, and kind of and walk with the Lord all growing up. I was very, very fortunate to be uh, in that environment. But I can tell you, man, as a son of a preacher, and you have to be one to understand this, there are constantly people watching you uh, to see if you're going to screw up. And trust me, we all do. We all make mistakes. But uh, it was definitely a fishbowl uh, when you're the son of a when you're son of a pastor. So you're one of four, right? You have three siblings? Yes. Yep. It's three siblings. They have a, all older. So older sister, older brother, older sister. Um, and then they are my, my brother is seven years older than me. And we, uh, He's been a great influence on me, and we still remain very close to this day. So you're the baby of the family. Yep. I got my butt kicked a little bit. My my oldest sister pulled my arm out of socket when I was like three or four. Is that true? Oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, and I and I still have 
shoulder injuries. I don't know if it, or shoulder pain, Brock, and I don't know if it's because people of our age played on the old school AstroTurf uh, in college. I did it at uh, up in Boone at App State. We had that old hard hard AstroTurf, and I don't know if my shoulder bothers me from falling on that stuff as a, as, as somewhat of an option quarterback, or if it's my older sister's fault for pulling my arm out of socket when I was little. You mentioned a fishbowl. Take me deeper into that. What did that look like? What did that feel like? What's that mean? Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, he was, he was very prominent and still is very prominently known in, in the area there. I mean, they have a huge church. It's, it's gosh, I don't know, maybe 10,000, 11,000 people a weekend, um, at their church. So, you know, when we go to the, uh, um, you know, we go to a baseball game, go to a Padre game, people will recognize your, your dad because he's been there and serving in that church for 30 plus years. Um, and then, and then they knew who you were and trust me, there's just, everybody's watching you. I, 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 one of the things I think helped me with, uh, with the career I ended up going into and, and you're always communicating was at the end of church when I was little, um, you do the closing prayer. My dad did the closing prayer. I would sneak out during the closing prayer and go wait for him in the back of the church. And he would stand there in the back of the church and shake everybody's hand as they were leaving. And I would stand right next to him and shake people's hands. So people got to kind of see me when I was just a little kid and they kind of just paid attention to me and, and they knew who I was. And, um, you know, that can be a good thing. And, uh, you know, people always celebrating with you and, uh, and there to encourage you if things don't go well. But if you, if you, if you do something dumb, man, you're not going to, it's not going to be, uh, unnoticed. Yeah. Was there a certain level of accountability that came with that? I think so. I, I, I like to think that it helped me, um, and I was always, I was always concerned. Look, I know what the Bible says. I know what the Lord wants me to do. You know, the Holy Spirit is inside you. You know what's right, what's wrong. Um, I, I, but there's also another element to that of, okay, if I do this, which is going to be kind of fun here in the short term, I know it's not the right thing to do, but there's an extra layer of, man, I'm going to really embarrass my dad. You know, this is, this is that I thought about those things, you know, when there were different parties or things going on that you maybe would have been tempted to do. Um, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful in that regard because I think it was almost like another layer of, Hey, let's really think about this before we do this. Was there ever a calling for you? I know in talking to, to pastor Judah Smith, and I believe he was season two with us. He's a chaplain of the Seahawks. He knew there was a calling on his life that he was going to follow in those footsteps as a pastor. You're there shaking hands with the flock. You're right there, a part of it. You're right in this journey. Has there ever been that pull for you, or was there at that age that, you know what, maybe this is going to be in some of my future as well? Well, I always knew that I, that I wanted to, uh, you know, to be active and to help serve. I never had the calling that I was going to be the, the pastor of a church. And my dad, he told me and my brother both this. You know, obviously he followed, and my dad followed in his father's footsteps. Uh, but he said, look, you know, God can call you guys to do wonderful things outside of, you know, being a pastor. I don't want you to go pursue what I've done unless you've been called, because I can give you plenty of examples of people who went someplace they weren't called and it, God didn't bless it and it didn't work out. So, you know, obviously I think my dad would have loved it if, if I'd have been called into it, but um, he never put that on me. He just said, if you if if you feel God's calling you in a different direction to do something else and you can always have an, uh, an influence and an impact in, in other ways, then that's great. He was always very supportive of that. We'll get to a little bit more of your football journey, and this is the intersection of some faith and sports, and, and you were a heck of an option quarterback there in Boone, North Carolina, and all the way through in your scouting. We'll get to a lot of that story, but I, I am curious right now. You're raising four children of your own. You were the baby of four. As you got to live in a home, in a godly home, 
right? And this is a little bit unique through all of our podcasts. Many of many of the folks, Daniel, that have been a part of this didn't really grow up in Christian homes. You grew up in a Christian home with a dad as prominent as he was in his faith in your community. What was that like, A, in the home? And then I guess B as well, Daniel, do you find yourself now raising four kids of your own going, man, I'm just like my dad. This practice that I'm doing here, this execution is <laughs> is just like we had in the Jeremiah home growing up. Yeah, there's a lot of those moments where we kind of turn into our parents, you know. Um, so I've had I've had plenty of those. You know, I, I used to feel because I listen, trust me, I listened to a bunch of your episodes and we had just texted about it the other day. When you when you texted me to to set this thing up, I had just listened to your episode with Dabo. One of the things I think there's a lot of people like me out there that you almost feel like you know what, man, I don't really have what's my testimony. I mean, look what Dabo went through in his life. Like those are real hardships and real challenges, and he's got he's got a story to tell. But I'm telling you, God's done so many amazing things, and there's been challenges and in different adversities in in, in our life. Um, you know, my dad's been through cancer twice, uh, stage four at, at one point in time. And um, so you kind of work through that as, as a family and, and you have different obstacles. I ended up transferring. Like These are all small potato things. We can get into them. But sometimes we can say, what do I have to share? What's my story? I can tell you, God is God is good. God has been there when I've been fired by the Cleveland Browns. God's been there when I've transferred schools. God's been there when my dad's been through cancer. And no, I did not grow up in an abusive home. Um, but we still have good news to share and we still can encourage people with our story. So um, that's one thing that's always kind of I think that keeps some people from speaking out because, we, man, my story is not that good. No, people people want to hear it and they want to know why you have the joy that you have. Was it hard to relate, Daniel? Was it hard to relate to your peers, maybe through your junior high, your high school years? Did you ever look back at that and go as wonderful a gift as it was to grow up in that home? Mm-hmm. You're, the, you're the son of a, of a popular pastor. Do you ever feel like there were times it was a challenge to connect or that people would always have a level of judgment in some way? Yeah, I think one of the things that I love what what uh, what my parents did is they didn't keep me in a bubble and they didn't do that with any of my siblings. You know, I played um, I always played AAU basketball. Um, you travel all over the place. We we had a team. Um, it was you know, we practiced at the Martin Luther King Rec Center in Lemon Grove, which was kind of a little more of the rougher areas of San Diego. And I had teammates that had been through things I could only imagine, you know, that I'd seen in movies. Um, but I didn't live in that little Christian bubble. I was outside that and mainly through sports, to be honest, um, and being able to be around people that had different life experiences than me. And then going to, uh, you know, going to college and and being in that environment, which was totally different than the Christian bubble that I went to, going to a secular secular school there originally at Northeast Louisiana before I transferred, um, and uh, you know my you, you know my dad always just would talk about, hey, we're leadership. We all want we all strive to be leaders, and it starts with wanting to listen to people and wanting to serve people. And I think when people kind of realize that's your spirit and and that's what you want to do. Um, I think that's what helps you relate. You don't relate. You don't relate to people when you're you're telling them, you know, what they should be doing. You relate to them when you ask how you can help them. And then ultimately, how do you end up? And now, by the way, your college has renamed itself. Like, how special and how old are you that it used to be <laughs> Northeast Louisiana and now don't even yes, go by Louisiana that name? Monroe. What's up with that? I know it made the transfer decision look smarter. 
because every time people ask where you go to school, you'd have to go through the whole explanation that they've changed, uh, that they changed their name. But, uh, and it's, I always, I was just talking, I, uh, I saw Peyton Manning the other day at the Entree Leadership uh, event, which is awesome. If it's a great podcast, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It's great with Ken Coleman and uh, uh, Dave Ramsey kind of runs that. And, and uh, I was at their event and Peyton was there backstage and I went back there and we were visiting and talking and uh, we were talking about University of Tennessee and, and uh, I said, who do they, you know, who do they open up with? Or who do you guys have this year? And he goes, I don't know. We've got one of those directional schools. And I'm like, hey, easy. I went to one of those directional <laughs> schools, okay? So how did you end up there? Do you want to talk about kind of a God thing here? Yes, so, I do. That's what this podcast I, is. I yes, figured, I do. <laughs> I, I figured you'd appreciate that. So I grew up in San Diego. Um, I'm at a small Christian school. But we have a really good football program. We win uh, three CIF championships, which is as far as you can go at that time. Uh, was all-time leading pastor in San Diego County history. And I was talking to a bunch of different schools, and you go into this process, and I remember, um, you know, you're talking to UCLA, you're talking to Oklahoma, you're talking to Notre Dame, all these schools are involved. And then all of a sudden, it's just kind of, this is how, and now that I know how it works, I was through those first cuts, right? I was in the cuts when you start recruiting the top 40 quarterbacks, then you get down to the top, you know, 30, 20. And I don't know where I fell off, Rock. I tell myself it's at the top 10, yes. but it probably was like 28 to 30 in that range when they stopped calling. Uh, but so everything uh, just started falling through the cracks in recruiting. I remember I had a uh, John Blake got hired at Oklahoma. Uh, Howard Schnellenberger, I believe, was the coach before him. And they had been recruiting me. And then when I had a visit set up and then when uh, they announced John Blake was going to be hired, I got a call from John Blake the night before they made the announcement uh, that he was going to be the head coach. And he said, hey, I'm going to be the new head coach at Oklahoma. You're one of our top priorities, you know, blah, 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 blah. I never heard from John Blake again. That's how great that was. That was that was before he watched the tape. Then he watched the tape. He's like, what are we doing with this guy? Uh, <laughs> but all this, all this, it, it happened. I was getting recruited by Pacific they dropped their football program in the middle of my recruitment. Uh, so it was just like one thing after another. And I'm sitting here going, okay, God, I don't understand this. Like I've done, I've, I think I've done a nice job. I've been, you know, kind of diligent and, and these opportunities I was so excited about, and they've all just fallen by the wayside. Um, I guess I'm just going to go to a junior college. I mean, I, I guess that's the, the route that I'm going to have to go. And then at the uh, the last minute, Akron came in and offered me a scholarship, and, and I visited there. They were a bad team, and and uh, that wasn't the right fit for me. So I was like, ah, I don't want to go there. And then I get a call out of the blue from uh, from Northeast Louisiana, and from a coach named David Arnsparger, who his dad is a legendary Bill Arnsparger. If if you've heard that name before, he was a defensive coordinator of the Miami Dolphins when they went undefeated in uh, in 1972. Well, he was the Chargers' defensive coordinator at that time, mm. and uh, there had been an article in this in the San Diego paper about how I'd set these records and I was you know hadn't signed it with anybody. So the defensive coordinator of the Charger reads reads that in the paper, calls his son, who's a coach at Northeast Louisiana. They start recruiting me, and they they sell me on the fact that look we've had uh, we've had Stan Humphreys, who was the quarterback of the Chargers at that time, went there. Bubby Brister went there. Doug Peterson, the head coach of the of the Eagles, went there. They had a nice tradition of quarterbacks. Um, so I went out there and visited, and uh, ended up uh, man, I just love what they were going to do offensively, and it was Division One, and you're going to play all these SEC teams, which I thought at the time was a good idea, um, and uh, and so I ended up committing there, redshirted a year. And then uh, ended up getting the starting job a little, maybe three or four games into my redshirt freshman year and uh, 
finished started seven or eight games to finish the year. We finished five and seven. We played four SEC teams. Um, we played Oklahoma State. I mean, we were kind of the money game. So to win five games was uh, about as good as it was going to get there. And and that's when I kind of realized, man, I, I don't know if I want to do this for another three years. Um, I don't know why God, you know, kind of took me here. This is this, this is not the place for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so then I I literally my dad talk about a loving father. Um, I told him, I said, Dad, I, I think I don't think this is the right place for me. I think I want to I want to transfer, but I want to transfer uh, down so I can play right away. I don't want to sit out a year. Uh, and when I announced I was transferred, I had a like New Mexico, Hawaii, some lower level Division One teams that, that that weren't very good at that time. Um, so I had my, my heart set one to play. So my dad prints out a USA Today with the listing of the top 25 teams in one double A. And he takes my tape from Northeast Louisiana. And this is, you know, this dates us, right? The VHS tapes yep. and, uh, and, and mails them out to all 25, um, end up, uh, going on visiting, uh, I got offered by Montana, Western Illinois and Appalachian state. Um, and then when I went on my visit to Appalachian state, their head coach was a man named Jerry Moore, who's now in the, uh, who's now in the college football hall of fame. Um, and one of just a, a legendary coach, but a better man and a stronger Christian. And when I visited with him, I was like, man, I'm connected. We are wired. We are wired the same. This guy's, this guy loves the Lord. And that's what we talked about on my visit, um, having an impact on the campus and, and, and they had a history of winning. So it just felt right. And so I ended up transferring there. And, um, and that to me is, is where I, I, it's, it's a long story. I'll let you jump in here, Brock, but it's, uh, that to me, that, that decision and that arrival at that school really changed my life. Was that a hard decision? Matisse Thibel in episode one of this season was just talking about that. Like his parents said, whatever you do, you are going to finish what you start. Was that, mm-hmm. was that in any way a conflict for you? Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a tough decision to leave Northeast Louisiana, um, but I did not have any peace there and I knew that's not where I was supposed to be. Um, and so I had 100% peace about leaving. Now the decision to go to Appalachian state, when I ended up making that decision, um, we get out there and, uh, one of the first things we do is we have, they, they conditioned different than what I'd ever conditioned before in my life. I mean, they, they were doing, uh, squat jumps, uh, up the stadium steps and it's a real steep stadium if you've ever seen it. But, mm. uh, Dude, it crushed me the first day. I couldn't finish. I could this first time in my life I'd never been able to finish a workout. And their their teammates, as you know, yelling at you, come on, you can't quit, you can't. So I go into the stadium and I'm just I'm just like this is I've just embarrassed myself in front of this whole group of guys. Like, how am I supposed to face these guys? Um, so I at that point in time, I was like, you know what, I just got up. This is not what I'm gonna do. I'm coming back home to San Diego. I've got a girlfriend who ended up being my wife. Um, you know, I don't need this. Like I, I just embarrassed myself. I can't, I mean, this is, I'm just, maybe I'm just not cut out for it. So I, I went, I went back to my apartment. I called my dad and told him that I was just going to come home, which is kind of funny. The opposite of Dabo story, right? Dabo's dad's telling him you can't do it. And Dabo does it. I'm telling my dad, I can't do it. He's telling me you are doing it. So <laughs> different relationship there. Uh, but he said, you're not coming home. So, um, I ended up, I think I missed a day or two of conditioning and this is in the summer and coach Moore called me into his office and uh, I sat in there and he said, what's going on? I said, coach, I don't know if I fit in here. This is the right place for me. I mean, I, 
I don't know why I just I can't even make it through a workout here. Maybe I just don't belong. And and uh, and he said, no, this is exactly where God wants you to be. And God's going to do amazing things. And uh, and I just I remember like I don't know why he believes in me, but he does. And uh, to kind of cut through it a little bit. So the next the, going into that fall, we had a running back coach named Tim Horton, mm-hmm. who is now the running back coach at Vanderbilt. He'd been at Auburn for a long time. Um, he was at Arkansas. He's coached McFadden and, and Jones, all those guys. But uh, great coach and uh, a really, really good Christian man. And he said, he called me into his office and he said, hey, I just had this thought. I wanted to get your thoughts. I said, what's going on, coach? He goes, think about we should do a players run Bible study. And I said, oh, coach, that's a great idea. I, I, I like that idea. Let's, that's, let's, that'd be cool. He goes, and I want you to run it. <laughs> I said, what? What? I'm the new guy here. Like nobody even knows who I am. Like, are you serious? He goes, no, I just, it's been put on my heart. Um, so, and then coach Moore came over to me and said, uh, Hey, you know, what night do you want? What night will work? I said, well, we could do Tuesday nights. But I said, coach, I don't know if any of these guys are going to come. I mean, this is a state university. I, mean, I don't know these guys. They don't know me. Like, is anybody going to come to a Bible study? I just going to tell them we're going to start a Bible study. We're all magically. There's going to be people there. He goes, I'll get, he's all, I'll help you. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll provide the pizzas. <laughs> so so we start that Tuesday night Bible. I said, guys, uh, at the end of practice, I said, Tuesday night, we're going to have a Bible study up in the team room. Uh, Coach Moore is going to have pizza there for you. So if you want pizza, you can come hang out. We're just going to do it. It won't take long, 15, 20 minutes tops. Um, love, to, love for you to be there if you want to be there. Um, so this thing starts, we start with maybe 20, 20 guys. By the time I finished up there my senior year, we had, I would say, 75 to 100 guys total. You know, we're talking about some student trainers and different people around the football program. We probably had 70, 80 people in there uh, just about every time. And uh, I talked to uh, to Eli Drinkwitz, who's the, the new coach at Appalachian State, just, keep, just got hired. And uh, we were talking about, you know, the school and everything. And I said... Uh, I said, how's the Bible study? He goes, oh, the player's Bible study does great. That Bible study, we started because my dad wouldn't let me quit um, because God wanted me on that campus. And I was just a vessel. God just used that. I, that was not my idea. It was Coach Horton's idea. Coach Moore brought the pizzas. We start that thing in 1998. And here we are in 2019. They still have a Bible study on that campus. And I'm going to guess, Daniel, that of all the things and and more of the journey that we'll get to here in just a second, all the things that you've done, of everything that you've been able to see and experience as a, as a scout and now professionally in this TV world, is there anything quite as meaningful as that? Absolutely not. And what's so cool about it is that you just had, you had nothing to do with it. It's just a God thing. You know, I, I kind of think about, um, you know, you, you've heard how they talk about if you clench your fist and you try and hold on to what you have, that God can't add to it, you know? So if you just say, look, I just use, just use, use me, whatever you want to do, I'm here. And, uh, and then he provided the idea and, and all I had to do was, and, and Brock, my, my Bible studies, you know what they were? Was, I told my dad, I go, dad, you send me some of your study guides. I mean, I was just ripping my dad's material, man. I was just whatever he had in those study guides. I'm like, he's like, I don't even have to do anything. I'm just going to read out of my dad's study guide. Um, and, but then God, God can bless it just because you're willing. And so, yeah, no, I, there's nothing that's been cooler to see over the years than that. Well, you used two words earlier, and that was listen and serve. You said earlier, hey, if you can really make an impact from a leadership standpoint of what your dad taught in your home, of how you 
or around your high school teammates and then ultimately your college teammates, you've got to listen and serve. Were there some listening and serving that then went on after Appalachian State as football door closed and now the real world door opens? Yeah, you know, I, I tell you a little bit of this journey here. Um, you, God's done an amazing thing. Like there's, it's repetitively happened in my life. So if you look at uh, disappointment leading to a, a course correction, which has led to a blessing, right? So I, I told us, told you about how you fall through the recruiting cracks, disappointed. That kind of leads me where I ultimately ended up, where I needed to be, where God wanted me, ended up working out perfectly. So I'm going into my senior year um, at App State. You know, you get you get to your to the end of your college career, you finally get to the point where you actually you're physically mature, you know what you're doing, and you've got a chance to really have some success. Um, and so I'd never been more excited coming into the year. We had had a kind of a quarterback competition off and on for my three years there. And so I would start half the games. The other quarterback would start half the games. You know, we were constantly in and out, yo-yoing in and out. And then kind of secured the job going into my senior year. Um, captain, you voted captain. We're playing Wake Forest in the opener. I've never felt that good on a football field in my life. And we go through the first half and we're getting after them and, and we're beating them up, playing pretty good. And then I get uh, – I get tackled on a, on a speed option play and my knee just kind of buckles and I tore, tore my MCL. And, uh, I just remember thinking like, man, like, God, what is going on here? Like we've, this is, this was kind of be a great year, but I knew we had a good team that was capable of winning a national championship at the one double a level. And I, and I just, man, this is, this does, this is awful. I don't understand why are you doing this? Why me? Why me? Whatever. I'm in the training room getting treatment one day. During practice, so I, you, you, this would never have happened if I wasn't in the training room. My brother's college roommate from Liberty, my brother played at Liberty University, and his college roommate's a guy named TJ McCrate, who's now with the Eagles. He sees me in there, and he goes, hey, you're David's little brother, right? That, and this has been several years since I'd seen him. I go, yeah. He goes, what are you doing? So we start talking, and, he, and, uh, and so then we exchanged phone numbers, and we kind of kept up with each other a little bit. Um, so, so that relationship was established with me being in the training room, being hurt. If I'm not hurt, I don't see him. He goes as a scout. He goes there. He, he comes and goes. I never see him. Never happens. So you fast forward then two years later, right out of college, I take a job with ESPN and I'm working as a spotter in the booth, as you know, up there telling you guys, you know, trying to help out with who, uh, helped the play by play guy out with who made the tackle and who, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was a really neat job, fun for right out of college, but not what I wanted to do long term. We're, we're doing a Ravens game, Brock, and uh, I run into TJ in the press box. And I would never have even recognized him if I hadn't seen him when I got hurt and we hadn't kept up that relationship. And uh, when we were visiting, he said, would you ever be would you ever consider scouting? And I said, well, no, nah, I mean, I've never, never even thought about scouting, uh, but it sounds interesting. So. Um, we, he, he introduced me to Phil Savage, who was the director of player personnel, introduced me to Ozzie Newsom, who's the general manager. They asked me to come volunteer at the combine. And, uh, and it's just, you go there and I didn't know what I was going to be asked to do. I, my jobs, I had two main jobs, Brock, very important. I had to save seats at the weigh-ins at six o'clock in the morning. And then I had to go get snacks for the room. So that's where that, that whole, whole thing, like what, what helps you, what can help you get a job? Well, I go back to what my dad said, you, you listen and you serve. I don't say like, what, where, where's the important work? Uh, no, no, this is what you need me to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get there early, try and get front row seats for these guys when we save seats. Uh, they would have the best snacks in the room. Um, so anyways, that leads to me getting a job with the Baltimore Ravens, which kind of leads into my scouting career. 
um, which never would have happened if I don't get hurt in college and run into TJ in the training room. So something that, you know, I love the game of football. My football life ends at the end of my senior season if I'm healthy. My football life is still going to this day because I got hurt. Um, so that to me was a total another example of God, of God just kind of showing you, uh, look, this is a course correction and this is going to be a good thing, not a bad thing. And I'm going to guess it didn't end there from a course correction no. or a disappointment standpoint. No, a- absolutely. So this thing, this is a pattern. My life keeps going. So um, with the Ravens for four years, Phil Savage, who I'd mentioned, he gets a job as a general manager of the Cleveland Brown. But Ozzie Newsom, uh, I had a contract and he said, you, you know, you need to honor your contract. I'm not going to let you out early. So I, I did two more years. You know, that gave me to my third and fourth year in Baltimore. Then I go to Cleveland. So my first year in Cleveland, I go there as their director. We didn't have a director of college scouting. I was a national scout, but you would kind of run the, the scouting department. So uh, I'm there first year. We go 10 and 6. Like, oh, man, God's just led me this wonderful situation. We've got a good young team. Like, the, I'm going to be Cleveland for the next 20 years. We're all going to leave here and be general managers. This is going to be great. Uh, the next year we go four and 12 and we all get fired. Uh, and I'm sitting here going like, man, like again, God, you brought me here. What? I don't understand why this, this doesn't add up. Why would you take me down this road if it's going to end like this? Um, and then, so then during this time, well, I had 18 months left on my contract with the Browns. I had went to college to study broadcasting. My dream had always been to, you know, to be involved and, and to be on air and, and, and cover football, watch and talk about football. And that's why I took the job with ESPN, even though it was a production assistant. I just like being around it, even though that wasn't my dream or goal to be in a production truck one day. But look, I've got no playing experience. I've got no coaching experience. I've got no broadcast experience. There's no way they're going to put me on television. That's just not how that works. So I kind of gave up on that TV dream, brushed that aside and said, "Okay, I'm going down the scouting path. Well, during the 18 months that I had left on my contract with the Browns, I got offered another job in the NFL. But there's offsets in your contract, which that means is I'm going to work the next year for an organization and I'm not going to make any more money than if I had stayed home and done nothing. And so at that point in time with our family, I thought this is going to be a good opportunity for me to be home uh, and, and, and this is going to be a good thing for us. And then we'll reset a year from now and figure out what we're going to do. Um, and then uh, Chris Mortensen, who's a close family friend with ESPN, said, you've always wanted to do the media thing. Why don't you start a Twitter feed. And I didn't even know what Twitter was at this time. Um, it was just kind of getting going. And I said, well, okay, I don't know what this is, but I'll try it. So I don't know why anybody cares what I have to say. And uh, he goes, no, you have a scouting background. There's people that play fantasy football. They might kind of think that's cool and you can answer their questions and blah, blah, blah. So I sign up for a Twitter account. I don't tweet anything. I don't even know how this thing works. And, and, uh, I'm on vacation with my family. My dad's, uh, uh, does a cruise in Alaska and he has speaks on the ship and there's a bunch of people there to hear him speak. So we're on that trip and I go to the internet uh, cafe to check my email and it says I have like 1100 emails and I go, what in the world? Uh, and it's all these people saying they started following you on Twitter and I'm going, this is, doesn't make any sense. What is going on? So I sc- keep scrolling down and I find an email from Mort and it says, Hey, I just encourage my followers to follow you on Twitter. You might want to tweet something. And I go, okay. So I start just tweeting out like, what, you know, hey, this is what I think of this player. This guy's going to have a good year, but whatever. Just kind of throwing some scouting stuff on there. And at that time in Twitter, you know, it's everywhere. Now at that time, there really wasn't anything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this starts picking up traction. The audience starts to kind of build and grow. And I start getting asked to do radio interviews. Um, I start a podcast on my own. I don't even know what I'm doing. It's just me talking into a microphone. Um, I start a blog. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just writing who I think the top five players are at every position. And, and, and then I get approached by ESPN uh, to start doing some television. So I'm like, this is an unbelievable God story. God has taken this, my original dream um, that's going to happen because I got fired by the Cleveland Browns. This is how God directed my path a thousand times better than if I had tried to just pursue broadcasting on my own. This is like a shortcut that God just gave me. Um, so this, okay, I understand it now. I'm going to go sign with ESPN and I'm going to be a, a broadcaster and God's amazing. And then... We start getting to the end of my 18 months, and we start talking to ESPN about a job and a contract, and 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 all of a sudden the NFL lockout happens, and I go, huh, that's not good. Um, so they're going to have a hiring freeze. We were going to move our family to Connecticut to go work at ESPN. So you know, I get off the road, no more scouting. Uh, the the travel had been hard on our our family. So. Um, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move to Connecticut across the country from Southern California and I'm going to be home and it's going to work out great. Except there's a hiring freeze now and my money's getting ready to run out. So again, at this point in time in my life, I'm kind of like, okay, well, God's up to something. Every time something like this happens, there's some, some reason for it and it makes sense. So you start having a little bit more faith the more times this happens. And so, um, I end up getting a, a job offer from the Philadelphia Eagles and I said, okay, well, maybe the TV thing is not supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be back in the scouting world. Um, so I guess that's the direction we're going. So I go work for the Philadelphia Eagles. Brock, halfway through my second year, I get a call from my broadcasting agent that says, hey, um, ESPN and NFL Network would both like to meet with you, and they'd both like to hire you. And I said, well, I'm, you know, that's, that's crazy. Like I haven't heard from this guy in a year and a half. Um, and so I told, uh, I told him, I said, well, I'll meet with him, but I can't do anything until we finish the draft. So we get to the draft and, uh, I had, I had, uh, opportunities at both places. Well, NFL network is 80 miles from my house. So God didn't say no. God just said slow. Like you're not going to move across the country to Connecticut with your family where everybody's thriving and doing great in their school. And you've got a great church and you're plugged in. No, I just wait, wait two years. And I'm going to get you a job 80 miles from your house. You don't have to move. And this is kind of the path you originally wanted to go on. But God just taking me on a journey of closing doors and opening other ones. And I'm telling you, it was the ultimate shortcut to be doing what I always wanted to do. Danny, I, as we sit here and we chat, I'm thinking right now about that person at home who has been fired, who's sitting in adversity, whose marriage is slumping, who's gone through adversity in their home is parenting through challenges, who's sitting there going, oh man, God, this is hard. Like you were at the bottom of the bowels of that stadium in Appalachian State, or you were when that job didn't come and you're running out of money. Like when you're sitting in that moment, right, you can look back at it now and say, oh man, it's a God thing. Oh, every time there's a course. But when you were sitting in that, what was restoring your faith? What did you lean into in those moments? I had a, I heard Dabo actually mention this verse the other day, but I had the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven plaque on my desk. Um, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in the future. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the future holds. And it's the old saying, but I know who holds the future. So 
God's got an unbelievable plan. Now there were there were there were dark days. I mean, there were days where I was depressed, quite honestly. I mean, my wife can tell you about it when the, the especially the time that I was, uh, you know, probably the first couple months after uh, after getting let go in Cleveland. Because not only is that God closing a door, I mean, that's your pride involved, right? Like, gosh, I've always thought I've worked hard and I've done a good job, but somebody's come along and said that I didn't do a good enough job. So um, I think that was a, that was a humbling experience and, and, and that ended up ultimately being a good thing. But yeah, there were dark days. Absolutely. Where you're just like, man, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. But I, I will say every, if you go through that list of things and there's been a bunch of others along the way that now, you know, I'm 40, uh, 41 years old. Um, and I'm going to have a lot of other, uh, doors shut and I'm going to have a lot of other course corrections in life. But what God does is when he starts piling up these moments, um, it, what it does is it's like it's like building blocks for your faith to grow. My encouragement to people out there, if you're going through something, if you're young, if you're going through something like this for the first time, <laughs> this is not going to be the last time. It's going to happen again. And and the good thing is, is that it's going to get better. God has a plan. You just need to you just need to stay grounded. I, I heard uh, I was going through the other day. Um, into my notebook, you know, I, I've got a notebook that I take when you go to church and you, you write your sermon notes in there. And I was transcribing those from my notebook into my computer. And one of the uh, stories in there that I, I remember when it was said, but it didn't really hit home. And then when I went back and transcribed it in my computer, I was like, oh man, I get it. It just said, you know, what happens when, if you're in a submarine and there's a storm, you go deeper. You go deeper and that's how you weather the storm. And that to us as Christians is you go deeper, uh, you go deeper in your prayer life, you get make sure you're getting in the word. And when you go deeper, you weather those storms. And, and to me, I don't know, sometimes we're sitting there in church, Brock, and you hear those things and they don't hit. But man, if you if you if you are somebody that is, uh, you know, that's going to church and maybe you're not thinking you're getting as much out of it, I would encourage you if you haven't taken notes, go take notes, because even some days when you don't think it's you've got anything you'd be amazed when you go back a month later and you're looking through your notebook or you're going through and you're taking those notes and putting them in your computer that that all of a sudden one of those things hits you right between the eyes that is really good to listen and to serve it's beautiful that about 45 minutes ago you're like well i there's not really much to my testimony like you know (laughs) when you look at Dabo or you look at some of these other guys and isn't it amazing, Daniel, is you just start to share and you start to look back on your life and you start to pour into all of these moments, all these course corrections. It's pretty darn remarkable when we listen and serve what's ahead of us. And from the NFL Network now, look at this journey over the last decade. I'm, I'm going to guess there were some course corrections and I'm going to guess there's probably even been some blessing you would have never imagined. 100%. I mean, when uh, when they brought me in, it was really kind of on a digital contract, like because I had written some stuff. And they're like, okay, we can have you do some writing for NFL.com, maybe some digital videos, um, and they'll sprinkle in a little bit of TV, but it's not really a TV contract. And then that just kind of <clears throat> that just kind of organically just kind of grew um, and just kept creating more opportunities. And then um, you know that that starts to grow. I'm I'm sitting there going, okay, well I'm I'm behind uh, I'm I'm behind Mike Mayock on the on kind of the list of, of where we are on our com in our coverage of the draft. Shouldn't say combine, but our entire draft coverage, which is a Mike is a good good friend. He is a great guy. He was an outstanding broadcaster and somebody I learned a tremendous amount from. 
but I didn't envision Mike would ever leave. So, you know, I was content in, in what I was doing, but you, you still, um, man, I would have been, uh, I'd be a, that would be my ultimate. That's my, he, Mike Mack has my dream job. Like what he's doing is my dream job, um, to be able to, uh, to sit there and, and, and roll through these players, um, as we go through the draft process. But I didn't envision Mike was ever going to leave anywhere. And then even just this, this, uh, before this thing happened, Mike had, uh, had, we had talked at, at, a, at, uh, maybe a month or two before, um, he ended up taking this job with the Oakland Raiders as a general manager, but I knew he was interested. And, uh, and, and Mike, I, I he could have done this job. He could have done the job at NFL network for another 10 years. Mm. And, and, and then all of a sudden, just like that, boom, he's gone. And my whole role changes. Um, and, uh, man, you start, okay, well, there's some pressure on you now. Like you've got to, you've got to make sure you're on your game here with this new opportunity and this new role. Um, but, but God was, uh, God was so good through that, through that whole experience. And, and, uh, I, I didn't, I did not envision anything like that happening at this point in time in my life. It, God has, again, I keep using those kind of, it's like, uh, remember when we played video games when we were a kid, like the little cheat codes that you could put in when we played Nintendo, like God's kind of like the cheat code. Like he's given me these shortcuts through my life that I'd never envisioned. So I, I just continue to be to be grateful that he's he's taken me on the journey that I've been on. Let's do this, Daniel. Let's end it right here. Okay, you're a scout. You check the boxes, right? As you evaluate the gift of your life, if you have a few boxes that you need to check in your faith, the foundational elements of what makes Daniel Jeremiah's faith tick, what are those boxes? Well, you know, I think you can look at you start with, with prayer is the number one thing. I think, you know, I, I think, um, that, that would be the first box I, w- I would look to check. I would say a box that I'm, that I need to work on. And this is in, in your, in getting in the word as well as, is your prayer life. What well, to me, those would be the two pillars. Those would be the two foundations. We, we used to call them the triangles of success in scouting. So <clears throat> if you look at a position, I can give you 10 or 12 different you know, position specific things you want to look for. But these are the three, you know, kind of the pillars that we call them a triangle of success. So how are they in those areas? Um, but if I'm looking from, uh, you know, from your spiritual life, from my spiritual life, what my goals are, I would start with prayer. I would start with being in the word. And the, and the number, number three is it connects to both of them. And that to me is the area that I have to improve on. And that is consistency being, being that person that's in that every single day. And it's not a sometime thing. It's something that you're doing all the time. Those would be the two things in my personal, personal life there. And then I also just keep coming back to, um, we use this phrase with our household a lot with our kids, which is, um, no matter what environment you're in, we, you know, we, as a family, we're going to be a light, you know, we are going to be a light. And to me, when you're light, when you're around non-believers, it goes back to the same things, the same thing that we've talked about to me. It's, it's you're, you're listening to the needs that are out there and you're serving those people in whatever way you possibly can. That's how you shine your light. And that's what we try and do as our family uh, in whatever environment we go into. Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports. Subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com.